Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, Feisty friends. Um, I am so, so happy to be back recording episodes on all things women's performance, though I do need to ask you for a little bit of grace this week. Um, you can probably hear it. I have a bit of a cold. So um, yes, I, I can see the irony in discussing health and wellness uh, have, while having a cold, but luckily I didn't have the cold when I did our interview for this week. So if you hear a difference in my voice, that's what it is. I've just come back from Arizona and the most incredible version of the outspoken summit that I think has has happened so far although every year that it used to be the outspoken women in triathlon summit and now we're the outspoken women in endurance sports summit I'm sure regular listeners heard our ads for that summit coming on this podcast and um this year was really special and I did write a blog about why it was so special, so I'll get um, Millie, our producer, to throw that blog in the show notes. But really, I think it was because, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we had decided to focus on business and helping women in particular to build their businesses or helping folks uh, take their side gig and turn it into a real business. And from the get-go, it was just like we had a group me chat going. People were engaged. A lot of people came alone. There was just a very, very special um, and inspiring vibe about the whole weekend. And then as we were on Monday before the event started, Vic Brumfield was announced as the first um, female CEO of USA Triathlon. So in our small but mighty triathlon world, that was super, super big news. And just everything about the event was really, really special. So I just want to say, I just want to give a shout out to all of the women who were at the Outspoken Women in Endurance Sports Summit last weekend. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being amazing. And for, for everyone else, I hope to see you next year. So this week's show is pretty special to me. I've always wanted to find a sex expert to come on the show. And whoa, sex expert did we, we basically found the best of the best sex expert. I've always really thought that if we're going to talk about performance and feeling and being our best, that we can't ignore something as central to who we are as humans, as sex and sexual pleasure, and even the relationship between those things and intimacy and our emotional well-being. And then I also think that sex is often portrayed through a male lens, sort of by mainstream TV TV shows and movies, and so I wanted to have someone on who could help us get to the bottom of a few things for us as women. 
And get to the bottom we did. So our guest today, Dr. Jessica O'Reilly, is a sex and relationship expert and television personality who travels the globe to promote healthy and deliciously pleasurable sex. One of the most interesting things about Jess, and we got into this in the interview, is that she was working as a high school teacher when she realized that sex education was greatly lacking in schools. And so she decided to go back and do her PhD so she could change the sex education curriculum. Her expertise quickly led to stardom, and you can find her monthly column in Post City or catch her on Tuesday morning on Global TV's The Morning Show, Wednesdays on 102.1 The Edge, and Saturdays on Playboy TV. And for those who have been around Feisty for a while, you may remember a while back on the If We Were Riding podcast, I talked about, or I actually did a deep dive to figure out this thing called a corgasm, which was a feeling I would get in the gym when I would recruit my core during certain exercises, I would sometimes start to feel like I'm going to have an orgasm. So I really, then I was like, is this normal? <laughs> so it was great to have Jess on and we confirmed that a corgasm is a real thing. And like she said to me, if it's happening to you, it's a real thing. And we talked about female pleasure, the struggle with shame and how we figure out what we like. I also learned that people who exercise probably do have better sex on average And Jess confirmed my assumption that emotional intimacy, good sex, and including pleasure in our lives is ultimately connected to better mental and physical health. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tafosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tafosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tafosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in Feisty Media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. 
Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Hi, Jess. How are you this morning? Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. How about you? I am great. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, This is the beginning of our third season of the Women's Performance Podcast, and I really wanted to have a sex expert on the show. And I'm so glad that our amazing producer, Amelia, found you. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Am I right that you started out as a high school teacher, you know, before that, before all of your, um, your current career, uh, tell us where you started. 
Yeah. So I was a high school teacher. I was in Toronto, uh, the Toronto District School Board. So a public school, high school. Uh, my students were 16 to 20. So they were a little bit kind of in and out of the system. And what I saw was that every single day they're coming to me with questions that intersected with sex and relationships. And, you know, at the time, I actually had an undergraduate degree in sexual diversity studies. I had been a peer counselor and, uh, you know, a, an executive director of the peer counseling center around sex at the University of Toronto. And I still, did not feel equipped and prepared to support them in the way that they deserved. And so I had, you know, probably way more background in sex and relationships than most teachers. And I still couldn't give them what they deserved, which was, you know, accurate information, up-to-date knowledge, um, information around like the nuance of what sex and relationships means to different people, local resources, community connections, all of those things. I kind of had no training in. And so I said, you know what, I've got to go back to, to school and do some study, do some work, some research around how we can better support teachers so that they can support young people. Because, you know, in places like in North America and Canada, I'm sure it's fairly close in the States, we've got almost every single young person passing through the school system. And it's such an amazing opportunity to provide accurate information and supports and help them to kind of negotiate what sex means to them, whether you're religious or you're atheist whether you're straight or you're gay, whether you're cis or you're trans or non-binary, uh, we need to have supports for absolutely everyone out there because it's not about, this is, you know, putting a condom on a banana or using lube, <laughs> you know? Was it's, that your experience in sex ed in school? I think so many of us, yeah. yeah totally. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we need to really be talking about communication and feelings and emotional literacy. And these are the core pieces that underpin the capacity to have happy relationships in the long run and fulfilling connections that may or may not include sex. Mm, I love that. That's so interesting. Okay, I have a couple questions coming out of that. First, like, so the seed was planted where you knew, in you, I mean, that you knew that we needed to talk about sex more, or you knew you, you that was something you wanted to be educated in. Where was that first seed? Like, where do you think you first noticed Hey, wait a second. Like there's something going on. We I don't feel educated on it. I want to find out more. You know, I I can't actually remember. Um, you know, I was raised Catholic. I'm Chinese, Jamaican, and Irish, raised in in Toronto. And it's not as though my parents were super uptight about things, but you know, they did give me a couple of kind kind of cartoon books, where did I come from? What's happening to me? But it's not as though I came from a family where they were open about sexuality. It's not, and and even let, let's extract sexuality from it because I do believe that it's emotional literacy and the capacity to feel and communicate your feelings that underpins everything in life, whether it's sex relationships or customer service, like it's all, they're all emotional interactions. So it's not as though I was in a family where they said, you know, how are you feeling today? What do you feel in your body? Oh, you're feeling anxious. How's How does that show up? No, of course not. Uh, so I don't know exactly where it came from, but I know that it galvanized when the students were coming to me with unplanned pregnancy, when the students were coming to me uh, looking for the plan B pill, students coming to me in unhealthy relationships, in abusive relationships, in toxic and abusive relationships with parents and siblings, not just intimate relationships. So that was the point, you know, when I was teaching high school, this was 2006, 2007, when I said, I've got to go back to school. And I, I believe the solution is in the classroom. That's not the solution. Of course, there are many different ways to access positive and uh, comprehensive sexual health education. But I do believe that we can lay the groundwork in the classroom. So I'm talking about starting in kindergarten, making sure that people know how to say, you know what, that doesn't feel good for me. 
Or when you do that, it makes me feel bad. Like the language of a a five or six-year-old, if we can lay the groundwork so that those things become normalized, the expression of emotions, boundaries, needs, concerns, fears, and the broad range of experiences humans share, you start that at five years old. And then by seven or eight, they're talking with a little bit more complexity. And then by the time they get into their teen years or their college years, this is so normalized and ingrained in their being that talking about sex and intimacy and relationships becomes an extension of that. But if the very first time you start talking about your boundaries, if the very first time you start kind of exploring past traumas is when you're already in a sexual intimate or intimate relationship, that can be hugely challenging. Yeah, that's so interesting. What you're saying is is resonating so much with me. Like I think of myself as a young person. I went through puberty early, you know, as a 13 year old, I had a lot of sexual feelings. I didn't have any way to understand or express them. But also what I was hearing from adults was, oh, like you might be feeling this. And there's honestly not that many adults in my world who I was talking to about this, (laughs) to be honest. But what I was, the message was, oh, but you're not emotionally ready you know? And so I think what you're saying there is like, if we can figure out that emotional piece from when kids are little and teach them like a good emotional language, then of course we'd be more ready to talk about our boundaries as we get older and go through puberty. Absolutely. And, you know, we have this wealth of evidence showing that comprehensive sex education that acknowledges a range of sexual desires, a range of sexual experiences that even acknowledges the pleasure that underpins our motivation to be sexual, to explore sexuality. Comprehensive sex, sexual health education does nothing to hasten the onset of sexual activity. There is this fear that if we talk about sex, young people, teens are going to start having sex. But the reality is the drive is there, especially in your teen years. So don't we want to equip them with the knowledge, with the comfort, with the curiosity, with the capacity and the language to explore what this means to them? Not that they have to go out and do everything. In fact, we see the opposite, right? We see that abstinence-only education uh, fails in (laughs) encouraging young people to actually delay sex if that is the goal. And I'm not saying that's always the goal, but we have to acknowledge that we are sexual beings, that sex is something that's relational, it's social, it's emotional, it's physical. For some people, it's spiritual. It ties into, uh, you know, identity for many people. And it's it's far more complex than, you know, as we said, like being able to label the ovaries on a, on a diagram or roll a condom onto a banana because <laughs> yeah. where, where's the relational piece? Where's the nuanced piece? Where's the nerves? Are we talking about why am I doing this? Does this align with my values? Where I start for everyone. Uh, and of course, it's at an age appropriate level. And I think it's hugely beneficial to adults as well, is to explore what your sexual values are. What does sex mean to you? What were your early messages around sex? And how do you feel about those now? What were the sources of those messages? And do you really value that source as a source of sex education? Or were they a religious leader? Or were they a mathematician? Did they know a lot about sex, had they explored their own sexual values. And then if we received messages that are hindering or harmful, and oftentimes that intersects with our identity, right? Uh, You know, gender identity, race, uh, other roles that we play, how we feel in our bodies, do we want to rewrite some of those messages? And so I kind of ask people to think about what are the emotional, what are the practical, what are the relational, what are the physical elements of sex that matter to you? And those are big questions, but if you can start there, it can be easier to make decisions around sex, whether you're 15 or 55. 
Mm-hmm. I love that as a framework. Um, do you think things are changing a little bit since when since you first started this journey? Hugely, hugely changing. So uh, I think that digital media, social media, and the shift from traditional broadcast media to a more accessible form of media, whether it be TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, uh, has definitely precipitated a shift not only in the way we talk about sex, but also in the industry. So number one, there are more sources of information than ever. And that's a really great thing, but it also can be a challenging thing because there are a lot of incredible educators online. And then there are people who just put information out there that isn't, uh, you know, based in it, that it's based on experience as opposed to perhaps data. Or uh, even not, or even just straight up lies. (laughs) Straight up lies. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. That's true. And I don't think it's intentional. I do think that it's their belief. And so we have more information than ever. And that's why young people require more context than ever. The other thing that's shifted, of course, is the access to porn. So in the absence of comprehensive sex education that acknowledges pleasure, we know that the number one source of learning for people of all ages when it comes to sex is porn. And porn is not intended to be educational. It's intended to be entertaining and titillating and however you feel about it with no judgment at all, that's perfectly fine. But you don't watch you know, a movie with car chases and think, oh, well, I'm going to drive like that. And you don't watch, you know, Jersey Shore or The Real Housewives and think, okay, so that's how I should communicate with my friends. We do not learn from popular media, all these other skills in life, but in the absence of depictions of sex, right? We have no opportunity to see what sex looks and sounds like we turn to porn. And so I think that's another shift. You know, when I was younger, porn was not as easily accessible. And now young people are encountering it by accident. They're not even looking for it oftentimes and it's popping up. And so that's why when I really think about what has changed is the necessity of conversations in advance of these various exposures to let young people know, you know, there are things online that are intended for adults that might be upsetting to you. They might be exciting to you. You might be Mm -hmm. curious about them and you may come across it, but I want you to understand that that is intended for adults. And if you do come across it, let me know, close it and come, let me know. And let's Mm -hmm. talk about how you're feeling. Now that's for young kids as they get older into their teen years. Of course, you cannot control what they watch and what they consume. So I think there's some really important messaging around however you feel about that. Uh, that's okay. You know, if, however your body reacts, that's fine. This, These are my feelings around it. You might want to share your values around what porn means to you. Maybe you, you, know, you see it as something adults can use for enhancement. Maybe you see it as problematic, however you see it. But you really need to examine your, your own values before you put that onto your, to young people in your life and the shame. But the important message I think for older teens is just know that that's not what sex looks like. That's not how most people have sex. Most people actually talk. Most people have interactions. Most people are practicing safer sex. Most people are doing testing. Most people can't, you know, hang from a chandelier like that because they're not, I know, you know, you may be an athlete, but at the same time, uh, porn stars are beyond, they're sexual Olympians. They're sexual Cirque du Soleil performers, right? They're, they're using camera tricks. They are prepping backstage. They're talking about their boundaries before they even get into this scene. So you're only getting the visual medium. So I think those are two important ways it's changed. And then the third, I would just say is that the industry has shifted over the last three or so years. And I think the last year has the most been the most significant because now Walmart, 
Target, CVS, Walgreens, uh, your even big grocery re- retailers are carrying sexual wellness products. So it used to be that like, yeah, these were toys that you kind of snuck into the back room of a of a dark shop to get your hands on. And now you can, you can buy a vibrator from Sephora. You can buy them at your big box stores. Uh, you know, Saks, which owns their Canadian version, The Bay, carries WeVibe toys. So there's a real shift in, in terms of normalization. And I think that's a really great thing. Yeah, so interesting. I'm just thinking of, I was thinking of this moment. First of all, I had the same sex education, the, the condom on banana, and everything was, as you just were describing, and everything was sort of about reproduction and just like what that act is, you know? And in my own life, it took a little while to figure out like female pleasure, what that looks like, or even how to talk about it once I had figured it out for myself, you know? Um, And then there was a moment a few years ago, my daughter's 12 now, but when she was eight or nine years old, we were sitting in the car and we were listening to Cardi B's song, WAP. And she said, oh, I was singing along. And she's like, well, mommy, if you knew what the song was about, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't like it. And I said, really? It's <laughs> like, we were pulling into park and I was like, <laughs> okay, this is an opportunity, you know? And I just, um, yeah, I guess I wonder like in your experience, do you have, and then I, obviously the outcome of that story is I have a conversation with my nine-year-old about what Cardi B is singing about there in terms of female pleasure. And I'm wondering if you have in your experience, do women have tend to have certain, um, I'd say like, would, do they come to you with certain issues or challenges um, that you see, like, do you see things trending? Yeah. I mean, I think what I was seeing in the beginning and I still see today, but there's, there's been a bit of a shift is a lot of shame, right? Shame around pleasure, shame around enjoying yourself. And I think the biggest thing that's been missing from sexual health education is a conversation around pleasure and talking about what it means from the anatomy to the relational side, to the experience itself. Because when we ignore pleasure, we create openings for not just dysfunction, but harm, right? If we live with this dichotomy in straight relationships where the where pleasure is for men and for women it's secondary, what does that say about consent? What are the messages we're receiving about how we use sex, how sex comes into play uh, in terms of power dynamics on both sides? And so the shame around pleasure is... I don't want to say it's a trend, but it's a it's a theme that I've seen over the years, and we continue to work work through, right? It's not like, oh, I'm done with shame today. We all are always dealing with sexual shame because it is a dominant mes- message. Now, I'll say younger people, I think, were raised with a little bit less shame than older people, but that's not uh, true across the board. We have to look at the way it intersects with other elements of our identity, like our body size, like our race, like our skin color, like our ethnicity, who is entitled to sex, who is entitled to pleasure. So even when we see popular culture representations of women who are so-called empowered or embrace pleasure, do they look like me? right? Do I see myself represented uh, as a Chinese person? Do I see myself represented as a queer person, right? Who who gets to embrace that empowerment or that movement forward? So shame is, is the big one <laughs> that we're all working through. Uh, and I do think a great way to kind of, again, look at those sources of shame and start to shed shame is to go back to, okay, where do these messages come from? 
Do I value that source? And how can I rewrite this message in a way that's more meaningful and aligns with my own values? Like just going back to that, the early messaging. So shame is a big one. And then, you know, there are, there are specific things that I think are a little bit easier to unpack. For example, uh, people who have difficulty with orgasm, uh, of course, that can be tied to shame, but sometimes it's just a matter of learning about the body and learning what feels good. You know, uh, the, the data varies, but I think we can say that around a quarter of people with vaginas consistently have an orgasm from penetrative sex alone. So that's Mm -hmm. a very, that's a small minority, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a minority of us. Whereas we have these expectations that one specific act should lead to this ultimate source of pleasure. But once you learn about the clitoris, once you learn that the clitoris is not just external, but it's also internal, that the bulbs and the legs of the clitoris actually get erections, right? We talk about erections all the time for penises, but everybody, every single body can get erections. And the way you learn about your body is through exploration, but also just learning the anatomy, right? So the inner bulbs and the legs of the clitoris in kind of simple terms, underlie the labia. So rubbing on the outside tends to feel better. And I'm, I'm going to plug, I, I have a podcast as well, the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. So if folks want to explore any of these topics, whether it's the physical side or the emotional literacy side, or I spend a ton of time just on relational communications, they can go check that out as well on any, any podcast platform. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear you say that. I I remember when I was in university, I had a number of conversations with friends who were all like, I'm not sure if I've had an orgasm, right? And and it's so, and that was so, yeah, it's interesting to me. And I think I was like, I think you're trying the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I don't, I'm not convinced that like penetrative sex is the way for a woman to have an orgasm. So, and, and at that time I sort of did a deep dive into some of the studies, but that's just really interesting for me to hear it from your perspective too. Like, do you find that something that um, is changing? Like, do more people have that information, you know, as a, as, as a 20 year old in university now, more likely to know? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Like even, I don't even know how old I was when I learned about the clitoris, but I, I probably was at least 19 or 20. Like, do you remember learning about the clitoris? I don't ever remember anyone telling me, but I do remember like essentially pleasuring myself from when I was quite young. And so figuring it out on my own, right. But not having any language. And so then later, it's like, then later you have the language, you're like, okay, yeah, that's it. But then still you're watching, you know, mostly even on mainstream television, right? You're just, when you watch a sex scene, it's just, especially at that time, now it's changing. Like I, whenever something's changing, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. But like, you know, you, you're just watching the same thing, right? Like, this is not my experience of, of like how I, how I would come to climax. So like somewhere there's a gap that I wasn't sure if it's just me or if it's, you know, everybody else. And it's just like my entire adult life has just been kind of this journey of figuring that out in a way. Well, that's a really great point that you, when you say you're not sure if it was just you, because I think that's another thing that's changing is that we are having more open conversations. And again, I think, uh, you know, digital communities are to credit for much of that because now you can go and look at message boards and you can feel reassured that you're not alone, whether it's because you tend to orgasm from external stimulation or you're feeling like, you know, the gender you were assigned at birth doesn't align with what you feel is your identity. Like everything, all of these different experiences are now being shared online and there's more opportunity for support. Of course, there's also opportunity for nonsense and harassment and judgment and, and harm. But I do think like we, we have research on digital empathy and digital communities and the fact that we're able to 
uh, find our people online and find those similarities and share our stories, I think is so valuable rather than just going to the research. Yeah, we can do a study, but not everyone's reading academic journals and they're definitely not accessible. Uh, So I think that's really cool that that more people are feeling less alone, whatever their experience. And that's what I feel my job is. My job is to say, okay, here's what's common. Here's what the data says. Here are some solutions that tend to work for people, but also human variation is infinite. (laughs) And so just because something works for 9,999 other people doesn't mean it will necessarily work for you. So if it works for you, you are the ultimate expert in yourself. Do what feels good. And I'm sure it's the same in the fitness world, in the running world, right? There can be a technique that works for one person or a diet or a supplement or a, a drink or whatever it may be. But if if it doesn't work for your body, then it's completely useless to you. And it's the same thing. Like if, if you get the most pleasure from kind of rubbing and grinding against a pillow, go for it. If you like a vibrator, go for it. If you like penetration, go for it. If it's actually not physical for you, it's all emotional and mental and it's fantasy-based, that is perfectly fine. And that's a question I receive from so many people. Like they'll say, well, I can only orgasm in this one way. What's wrong with me? And nothing at all is necessarily wrong with you. If you've figured out what works in your body, then go ahead and embrace it. You know, we think about, I I think about food. I'm always comparing sex to food. If everybody really loves chocolate and you don't like chocolate, you're not broken, right? You just don't need to eat chocolate or, (laughs) you know, like culturally. That's a great comparison. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We eat chicken, chicken feet in my culture. Like I know a lot of people don't like chicken feet. It it doesn't matter. They're not right. We're not wrong. There is some cultural judgment there, I'm sure, but you do what works for you. And I think that people just need permission first and foremost, to feel what they feel, to like what they want, to be who they are. And it's hard to cut through the noise and the shame and the dominant messaging that is shrouded in judgment and really get to that. And that's why I go back to those sexual values. Like, what does it mean to you? And if you're not able to break through to that, where are you getting these messages that are blocking you? And how can we kind of chip away at those blockades? As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. 
to check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match. And then use the code performance for 15% off your first purchase. That's code performance at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off. And the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. Yeah, for sure. Um, a few years ago on a different podcast, I described, I, I actually, it was part of my attempt to find out if other people were having a similar experience to me. And I described a situation where sometimes if I was in the gym and kind of recruiting my core, if you will, in a certain way, right, I would start to get a, a feeling that I was going to have an orgasm and actually sometimes have to stop doing what I was doing uh, because I, and I did actually one time push it. <laughs> push it over the edge just to see if I could make, if I could make that happen. And I could, so there was something real going on there, like nothing to do with, you know, you know, not, not even try actually at a time when I didn't even want that to be happening. Right. Even now I'm like, Oh, if I'm doing pull-ups or something and I'm thinking, I don't want this to be happening right now. I want to finish my set. Um, is that, is the core orgasm? Have you heard of that? Is it a thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. First of all, it's a thing if you're experiencing it, right? right. So that's that's the <laughs> most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. If it happened to you, whether you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it or felt neutral about it, it's it's a real experience and it's valid. But there's research around orgasms and all the different ways that people are inducing them while they're working out either accidentally or on purpose. So there's research on people, you know, oftentimes it's when they're doing abdominal exercises, engaging the core, sometimes it's climbing, sometimes it's lifting weights, sometimes of course it's like biking or spinning. And it's really interesting because it may be related to the pelvic floor, right? So when you have orgasms, you have these contractions. 
Yeah. Yeah. You have these contractions in the pelvic floor. And if you are contracting those muscles in a way that mimics orgasm or brings on orgasm, you can have, I guess you can have two types of orgasms and it's not that they're clearly defined or anything. I'm just going to describe them this way. One would be that you have the contractions that you are used to having during orgasm, but you don't have the rush of pleasure with that, you know, intense release, right? So you're having the kind of, I would say the physiological sensations of orgasms without the mental right? Mm -hmm. So there's like this release that's muscular, but you don't feel the same kind of erotic tension release, or you could have the full, the full shebang where you have Mm -hmm. the orgasmic contractions. Plus you have those feelings of orgasm. Uh, I would be surprised if it's as exciting as when you're having sex where you're letting yourself go and you're getting into a fantasy and you're kind of enjoying and embracing the moment, but I wouldn't be alarmed if it happens. Uh, It's not as though you have to let out screams and yells. That's the other thing that comes from porn. And when it goes back to your friends in college, not knowing if they've had an orgasm, again, in the absence of comprehensive sex education, we think that our orgasms should look and sound like they do in porn. And I call them like porngasms with the chimpanzees going like, (laughs) and they're like making so much noise. But for many of us, an orgasm is quiet. It's, it's a big, huge exhale. Um, sometimes they can be loud for some people, but everybody's different. And so it's not as though people are screaming and yelling and, uh, you know, squealing in the gym necessarily. Yeah. Are there different types of orgasms? I mean, the the answer to that's yes, obviously, but how would you define different types? Yeah. So that's a great question. So I do believe there are different types, but I think it can be very difficult to differentiate between each of the orgasms. So when I think about a, a type of orgasm, I think about the source, uh, usually physical, but it doesn't have to be, uh, of stimulation that is leading to orgasm. So in your pelvic region, you have multiple nerve endings, right? So you have the pelvic nerve, the pudendal nerve, the hypogastric nerve. We believe you have deep extensions of the vagus nerve. So what does that mean? That means that there are different nerve pathways that can potentially communicate pleasure to the brain to bring on orgasm. So if you are stimulating, for example, the external clitoris, you've got one nerve pathway communicating to the brain. If you are internal and curling up toward the tummy wall and stimulating that kind of G-spot or G-zone area, you've got a different nerve pathway communicating pleasure to the brain. If you're playing with the nipples, if you're playing with the prostate, if you're playing with the perineum, whatever it is, there are different nerve pathways. Having said that, there in very close proximity. So unless you've got a very pinpointed object stimulating one area, it can be difficult to differentiate. And I don't think it's important to differentiate. So, you know, we'll talk about clitoral orgasms, G-spot orgasms, vaginal orgasms, anal orgasms, nipple orgasms, blended orgasms, cool. You can do all those things and explore all those things. But what I don't want is for people to feel as though, oh, here's the checklist. I've had all of them. Right. Um, Now there are some themes that we've pulled out from what people describe in terms of orgasm. So for example, with a clitoral orgasm, which is probably the most common orgasm, and some experts would argue that all orgasms are clitoral. Uh, I wouldn't quite agree because some people can just fantasize their way off. Some people can orgasm from just their breasts, which is clearly far away from the clitoris. Uh, But if you are stimulating, for example, the clitoris and you have an orgasm, people will describe it as kind of like tensing and releasing and tensing and releasing. And then this huge release that 
signifies the orgasm. The G-spot, for example, or the G-zone, which by the way, is not an anatomical entity. It's an area that you feel through the vaginal canal up toward the tummy. So just in, into the canal, curl upward toward the tummy. And the, the G-zone is sort of part of the urethral sponge, which is sandwiched between the vaginal canal and the bladder. You don't have to memorize all this, but you curl in. People who have orgasms from that area will often describe it as almost the opposite of a clitoral orgasm because it feels like you're bearing down, like you're pushing something out of your vagina. And people will say that it also feels more full-bodied. And we believe that that has to do with deep extensions of the vagus nerve. And because the vagus nerve wanders throughout the body, it creates this more full-bodied sensation. We hear the same thing for people with prostates, that it feels more full-bodied than an orgasm that is only focused on the penis. Uh, again, I'm always a little reticent to get into the details of this because then I find people are like, oh, I got to go find that orgasm. I got to get that full body. Listen, do what feels good in your body. Try the techniques. I, again, like you can go to on my podcast, we have a few on the G-spot orgasm and squirter orgasms, which is a whole other conversation and the prostate orgasms. Please go try all the techniques, but don't get hung up on a result. Just enjoy them. If it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. feel good, stop. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. I'd like to talk bigger picture a little bit and what's, you know, is there a connection between, or have you found in your practices a connection between, um, first of all, people who have, or women who have a lot of sexual pleasure in their life and overall well-being, Um, and then same question, I think with an intimate sexual relationship and overall well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that the frequency of sex is tied to frequency of exercise. We know that when you feel more comfortable, when you exercise, you feel more comfortable in your body, more confident in your body. And those things are tied to pleasure and orgasm. We, we know that just physical exercise, physical activity makes you feel more connected, more grounded. It has the capacity to, to support mindfulness, especially when it's not just outcome focused, right? When you're exercising for the pleasure of it. Uh, we know that there are chemical responses that align between sexual response and exercise, right? That release of endorphins, the flood of adrenaline, norepinephrine. We know that, you know, that that high that you can get from oxytocin, we experience also during sex. So oxytocin levels double right before orgasm, and it can have this palliative relaxing effect on the body. So there are so many parallels between movement, exercise, fitness, and sex and pleasure. In terms of relationships, there is research in this area uh, around, for example, like if you work out with a partner or if you have fitness goals and your partner is sharing similar fitness goals or just sharing their own fitness goals, you're more likely to follow through. Uh, we, I think there was research on couples working out together, also having more frequent sex. And I don't want to over state the value of frequency, right? Like it's not like, oh, more sex, the better. I, I would be more focused on quality, but most people are concerned about frequency, mostly because I think so many of us feel we just don't have the time or we're not making the time. That's another huge piece. I, and I always tell people, you know, if you can make time for fitness, you can make time for intimacy. And that doesn't have to be just sex because intimacy is so many different things. It could be a deep conversation. It could be acts of kindness. It could be just simply feeling supported when you when you're you know in a moment of need. It could be just you know hanging out together and enjoying one another's company, uh, developing trust, doing something new and exciting together. Uh, and sex fits in with all of those things, right? When you're willing to try new things, I do find that athletes oftentimes are willing to push their comfort zone uh, and just push a little bit harder and do things. That that don't feel 
particularly comfortable in the moment. Now, I'm not saying doing anything that you don't want to do. I'm not suggesting you pressure anybody into anything, but that practice of pushing your comfort zone goes such a long way in relationships. The willingness to have uncomfortable conversations, to talk about topics that make you squirm a little, whether you're talking about frequency and the fact that maybe you're not having as much sex as you would like to, instead of allowing it to be the elephant in the room. Or maybe you're talking about your fantasies, even if they don't align with your real life values. The will, the willingness to push through and have those uncomfortable conversations, I think, is well aligned with folks who are willing to push their comfort zones when it comes to fitness. Right. And then, you know, I watched your TED Talk uh, yesterday about, I think it's monogamish. Mm-hmm. Is that what, is that what mm-hmm. the term was? Yeah. Um, so interesting, like, just to hear you talk about exploring, like, kind of exploring that in between zone between actually having an open relationship, but then actually talking about like your fantasies or maybe in relation to another person, how does, how would someone sort of start that journey? What do you, um, how do you help couples do that? So I'm going to go back to some fundamentals around sexual communication. And I always start with the three F's feelings, frequency, and fantasy. Those are kind of the three topics that I think are important to talk about. And the most important one is feelings. And so I would suggest that you talk about your core erotic feeling and your elevated erotic feelings. Your core erotic feeling is the feeling that you require in order to potentially get in the mood for sex. And everybody's is different. So do you need to feel relaxed? Do you need to feel loved? Do you need to feel sexy? Do you need to feel powerful? Do you need to feel confident? What is yours? Uh, And that's a big topic, of course, to explore. Mm-hmm. And then once you've talked about that, you can talk about your elevated erotic feelings, which are the feelings that make sex really exciting because, you know, I've, I've written books on sexual technique. I have video courses on how to touch your partner, how to give a good blowjob, how to go down on your partner, how to give them multiple orgasms. But honestly, and I, I do that because it's helpful to people it boosts their confidence. But honestly, <laughs> what's far more important than mm-hmm. any technique is how you make your partner feel and how they're willing to make themselves feel. Because mm-hmm. what makes sex exciting is not like a tighter blowjob or a deeper blowjob or a sh- you know a more a, vo- a better stimulation around the head of the clitoris. What makes sex exciting is the emotional element, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes, your core erotic feeling is rooted in a feeling of safety and validation, and your elevated erotic feelings are often rooted in subversion and risk. Because if you have the core where you feel safe and loved and respected and cared for, that's when you can go and play with emotions like fear and risk and jealousy and threat that make most of us very excited. And when I think about, you know, athletes who love to push themselves, those of us who love kind of adrenaline inducing activities, the same thing goes in in bed when it comes to sex. If you can do things that feel uncomfortable, but you know are safe, right? I call it the roller coaster rule. Um, you want to fly through the air at 600 miles an hour. So your old reptilian brain believes you're about to die, but you also want to know that that roller coaster is safer than any highway you're taking on a daily basis. So I start with core erotic feeling and elevated erotic feelings, because once you go there, that's when you can start to talk about other things. Like I'll I'll say a really common fantasy is to have a threesome. Are most people having threesomes? Obviously not because Mm -hmm. they want to protect their relationship and they don't feel that it, it uh, they'd be comfortable or because they don't have access to a third person or because they have, you know, fear around various risks associated with threesomes. Some people are having them and that's perfectly fine as well. But most people seem to ask me about threesomes these days. There's no group that I work with anywhere in the world who's not curious about threesomes. It's like the number one fantasy that comes up 
but most people are not having them. And so if you can talk about the feelings you associate with that fantasy, maybe you just want to feel overwhelmed with pleasure physically. Maybe you Mm -hmm. want to feel irresistible. Maybe you want the power of knowing two people want to service you. Like what are the feelings that underlie your desire? That's when we can start talking about almost everything. Now, when we talk about monogamish, so that TED talk is so old now. Um, I thought maybe that, yeah. Yeah, but monogamish, my version of monogamish is a little bit different. Mine is that you're monogamous, but you do things that, push the boundaries of monogamy. So you talk about other people, you look at other people, you fantasize about other people, you share that with your partner, maybe like within a safe consensual space, you're flirting with someone else, not leading them on, but just having a good time. And there's some cultures that are just naturally more flirtatious, like North Americans, Americans, Canadians are, we're kind of prude about that stuff, right? We're like, we're kind of cold just in general, right? We're not super warm people who are, you know, some there's, and it's very regional, of course, I'm sure California is different than, uh, you know, places in the South is different than Toronto. Toronto is a very cold city, Mm -hmm. I find. Mm -hmm. So if you can get into feelings, talk about your feelings, talk about frequency and start talking about your fantasies, that's when you can have exciting, loving, passionate, romantic, but monogamous relationships for a lifetime. Like if you expect to just be excited by a monogamous partner for five, 10, 15, 50 years, just by the mere presence of their being there because you love each other, it's not particularly realistic. I'm not saying you can't enjoy sex and that it can't be physically good, but if you really want that passion, if you really want the excitement and the thrill that you experienced in the beginning, we need to create space for risk. And I would say that is the number one thing that folks are missing in relationships, even if you're happy, even if you get along, even if you're very loving, um, sex tends to fall off because it's just not as exciting because you've done it a gazillion times. And it's not that you're not attracted to the person. It's not that they aren't lovely to have sex with. It's not that they're lacking in any skill, but we just lack the passion and we lack the passion because we know them too much, right? Like, you know, and, and so you have to create space for risk. And that's where I think the three F's conversations is a, they're good places to start. And again, if you want to explore like the core erotic feeling or the elevated erotic feeling, we have podcasts on each of those where we flesh it out and share. Uh, I think in one of them, we kind of share a case study because oftentimes my core erotic feeling is different than my partner's core erotic feeling. So I assume that they want to feel what I feel and they assume that I want to feel what they feel and there's a miscommunication. We have to work that out. Yeah. Isn't that like anything in life? You know, I just, I'm like relating to so much of what you said about like starting with understanding what your core emotion is behind something that you want, something you might fantasize about something that you, and like, if you start there and you can express that well, you know, it's like, it's the same thing as, you know, if you're in a relationship or couples therapy and you're like, instead of saying you did this to me, you did this to me, you're saying, I feel like this (laughs) when this happens or when I think this or, and it's always a great starting point. So I, I really, um, yeah, I really appreciate the way you're talking about applying that to a sexual relationship, a monogamous relationship. It makes a lot of sense to me, um, for sure. Do you have any strategies for dealing with um, jealousy? It's such an ugly emotion to me. And I feel like sometimes we uh, like just kind of avoid it or walk away instead of going, like you said, to that core place and like I'm trying to understand ourselves and why we're feeling it. Yeah, I think we need to know that jealousy is actually functional and it's not you know, you can't avoid it. It's a human emotion and you're going to experience it. So jealousy can help us to recognize what we value. It can help us to acknowledge some of our fears. 
Uh, I think it is our job first to learn to self-soothe before we go to our partner and ask them for reassurance. Um, that's not to say like every single time you can't just ask for reassurance, but I think there's real value in, in feeling jealousy. And I'll just say that people in very happy relationships can actually start to experience jealousy as an elevated erotic feeling where it can be a super turn on because you feel so secure in the relationship. Playing with fantasies that feel a little bit threatening or destabilizing can actually be really hot. But to go back to the question, uh, anytime you feel something, I think it's important to number one, name it, to say, I feel jealous. Because most of us, when we feel jealous, we attack, we withdraw, we criticize, uh, we make it not about our feeling, we make it about other people. Right. So I'll take a really specific example. Like I see my partner talking to someone and I feel threatened for some reason or another. And so I criticize that other person. I demean that other person or I get mad at my partner instead of naming the feeling for myself, which is, ah, oh, I'm feeling jealous. All right. Then I might stop and say, OK, what does that feel like in my body? Because sometimes if you can soothe the physical symptoms, it can actually help to attenuate the intensity or the you know negative effects of the emotion. So maybe I can kind of feel my heart rate <laughs> rising and I just need to take a couple of deep breaths and then the feeling will also start to dissipate. And then I can ask myself like where is this coming from? Like what's my fear? What's my fear that this person is so beautiful that they're going to walk off with them after our 20 years of marriage? <laughs> what's my fear? Is my fear that I want to be more like that person in some way? Um, can I be more like that person or are there some things that I can't be more like them, right? Like, for example, if that person's really, really tall, well, I can't be any taller than I am right now. Um, so I have to also get comfortable with myself. Uh, and then I can probably, once I calm myself down, self-soothe and say, okay, like, uh, you know, we've got this 20-year relationship. This, my partner shows all this love to me. I should be glad that they're laughing with someone else, that they seem to be having a good time. Um, there's no reason for me to think that this is a threat to my relationship. And then if I, that doesn't work, I might go to them and say like, oh, tell me I have nothing to worry about. Do you know what I mean? Rather than you were doing this or, blah, you know, you, were, you, you seem to be having a good time, right? Some sort of passive aggression instead of saying like, oh, that person is like really beautiful, <laughs> uh, you know, and then, you know, or I could say, tell me I'm beautiful or whatever it is we're looking for. I'm using a very kind of superficial example because it's not always about beauty, but I think that's a really straightforward one. Um, so that's the next piece. And then it's also my partner's job to not validate my feelings, but to not invalidate my feelings. Because sometimes when we see our partners feeling jealous or we sense that they're jealous, we accuse them of their feelings. We say things like, oh, you're just jealous. I'm like, yeah, I'm jealous. That's what I'm, that's what I'm feeling. So if we shame people for feeling, so I think the number one thing is to actually not see jealousy as shameful, to acknowledge that these are things that we feel and ask ourselves why we feel it um, and, and be okay with feeling it at times and saying like, all right, so I'm going to have to get over this because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it in a relational example, but we can feel jealous in business. We can feel jealous around money. We can feel jealous around so many different things. And the more comfortable you get with yourself, perhaps the less you will feel jealousy or when you feel jealousy, you'll see it in a more rational light. Yeah. I love that. I think jealousy, it is one of those emotions that we tend to kind of push away because we see it as negative instead mm -hmm. of like, what is useful about this emotion? What am I learning? What do I need to know about myself? You know? And I love that you gave the example of business too. Cause I, I think sometimes also when we do that with an emotion for so long, it just becomes habit, you know, to like that, just shame ourselves and also just right away blame, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so for our audience, 
um, for those who are listening and they're thinking, okay, maybe I would like to um, increase my intimacy and um, my sexual, it helped my sex life with my partner. Um, where would you start? Um, okay. So I would, oh, it depends what you want to do. Um, <laughs> that was a pretty I, broad question. Yeah. I would yeah. start with a conversation. Like I love for couples just to have check-ins around like, how are you feeling in this relationship? So that's something. So it's always relational to begin with. People think it's all about sex, but really you have to lay the groundwork so that you can even have fun with the sex. So how are you feeling in the relationship? What can I do to support you? Is there anything um, you want me to know, right? Just to have those conversations. And then if you specifically want to talk about sex, um, I always say like, start with the positive. So, oh, like, you know, a few weeks ago when we did that thing, it felt so good. Um, make space for inquiry. Like, has anything been on your mind? Are you into anything? And then make your request, whatever it may be. Like, I wish I, I'd love to talk about how often we're having sex. Cause I love it with you. And I want to make more space for it. Um, or maybe you want to try something new, like a toy, like, oh, I would love, I saw, I listened to this podcast and she was talking about this couple's vibrator. Is that something you'd want to kind of shop with me for. Um, but if you can start with a positive, make space for inquiry and then make a request, I think it can be a good formula to follow. And these things become natural. It doesn't have to sound so formulaic or, or clinical, but I, I think the real issue when it comes to intimacy and sex and any topic that we feel intimidated around is that we wait until we're really upset and then we're critical or we complain as opposed to making requests. We're like, oh, we haven't done it in X weeks or X days or whatever. Uh, and that usually you know, a, a natural response to that for many people is to withdraw or accuse or get upset or self-shame. But if we can normalize conversations around, se around sex so that we're talking about it, not only when there's some sort of perceived deficit, then it's, we talk about it the way we talk about food, right? Like we, we, we look at, for example, if you're coming to my house, I want to know if you have any dietary restrictions. I want to know if you eat spicy food. I want to know what you're into. And we don't have those conversations around sex. We expect our partners to just be intuitive. And sex is a learned skill. It's not something you're born good at. And there also is no one who is highly adept at sex because what you're into is different than what I'm into is different than what you know somebody else is into. And so we have to start seeing it as an ongoing learning process. Uh, and I think if you can approach your partner with that curiosity, like, I want to know more about what you're into. Um, it can be, feel really good, actually. It can be really exciting, even if it's a nerve wracking conversation to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to ask you before we go, I read somewhere that you get harassed online a little bit. Um, as a woman who, you know, who talks openly about sex, it's, it's easy for me to imagine how that could happen in the online space. How do you deal with that? And how do you just generally deal with not caring what people think? So I absolutely care and I would be a terrible person to offer advice on this because I suck. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I do care. Like, you know, you're human. So letting it just roll off your back is, is a challenge, right? So if you go back to like evolution and what social rejection feels like and what feeling threatened feels like, automatically it feels kind of scary. So like somebody wrote the other day, I had posted an article. Oftentimes it has nothing to do with sex, but people just see your picture and they want to harass you. And he's like, oh, what I wouldn't do for one night with you. And I get that that doesn't feel threatening, but it doesn't feel good to be objectified for me. So in mean, in my work, I'm a little tough. I use a lot of humor. Uh, on my podcast, I now have my partner, Brandon, as a co-host. And that has shifted things for me. I feel a lot more comfortable talking about things with him at my side, which is really sad because the mere presence of a man is a deterrent from people harassing. And that that's really sad. But I try and just like block and delete. 
Um, but I'll be honest, I stew over it. It bothers me. I feel, it feels like crap. <laughs> like I don't have the answers. Uh, there are people who are really good at saying, oh, I don't, I, it doesn't bother me, but I'm quite a sensitive person. <laughs> um, so I can't say I have any great strategies, but I I'm open to them. <laughs> yeah. I hear you, you know, and I like hearing you say that I'm so grateful for someone like you who has been willing to like, first of all, get the education and learn all about these things, seeing the void that we all, you know, like I felt like I just grew up in a great big void of information about, about sex. And like, I talked about, about female pleasure and and that I had to figure it out for myself. And now I can see that my daughter is growing up in a different environment. Right. Um, Amazing. Cause you're breaking those generational norms. That's, that's, that is a, like a gift to the world. Right. And not just with me, but with, you know, in the culture in general, you know, um, and that's really largely due to people like you who have been willing to um, talk about these things. And I think it's so important for women, especially to talk about these things because so much of the conversation is dominated by male pleasure and um, a male viewpoint on the world. So um, I'm just, yeah, I'm very grateful and thank you. And and I'm sorry that you have to put up with that shit. It's not so bad. And I will say there's far more positive than there is negative. And so I have to work on my own negative filtering where I will focus on now I'm doing my own therapy uh, where I have to focus on the positive, but yeah, thank you so much. We're trying. And uh, I think that the mainstreaming of this conversation is so important. So like you are more focused on on fitness and that type of performance, but it intersects with this. And when you are lacking in one area of your life, it affects the other. And that's really why I do the work I do. We know that when people have happy relationships, it is the most important determinant to overall mental health, physical health, and life satisfaction. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. If people want to learn more or follow you, where can we follow you? Sex with Dr. Jess and the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Amazing. Okay. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. 